Chapter 12 The Secret of the Sahara Kufara by Rosita Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 The Flight from Taj. Thereafter, we settled down for a day or two to the reserved and placid life of Taj. We got up shortly after sunrise, and while there was yet no sign of movement among the dark, discreet walls, we wandered miles along the cliffs, trying to get the exact positions of the various oases and villages. The latter are almost invisible in some lights, as they are made of the sand and stones midst which they stand. We found that the wadi narrowed to a strip to the northeast beyond Boama, while to the west it widened out into a wide expanse of Hatab, high mounds covered with sticks and leafless bushes. To the southwest, these hillocks rose from twelve to twenty feet, and then beyond Tolab, which was too far away to be seen from our cliffs, the Hatab gradually merged into the flat desert. One morning we explored the whole of the salt marsh from whose hard gray stony matter the Tibus had built their houses. We found the remains of a whole village, though some of the houses were but broken circles on the ground. The main fort had one chamber sixteen feet in diameter, and the highest bit of wall existing measured eleven feet. But round it was a crumbled mass of walls and smaller rooms, or separate buildings perhaps, as each was neatly finished off with perfectly rounded surface, like the damp clay pots one sees made on a rotary wheel. I think the Tibus must have found the salt, hard sand, especially good for their very enduring mortar, for their ruined villages are to be found only on marshes, as at Busima, Buma, and Jaff. When we heard that there were Tibu remains in Tizerbo and actual Tibus in Ribiana, we instantly concluded that there were marshes in these two oases, and the idea proved correct. When we returned from our matutinial walks, we had enough appetite to cope with Sidi Sala's prodigious hospitality. Every morning, on the stroke of nine, a light tap came on my green and yellow door, and there was Durer, with smiling ebony face, ready to lead us by sandy path and intricate court and passage to the wide carpeted loggia where waited our kindly host to wave us into the long dark chamber redolent of roses and cinnamon after we had gravely washed our hands in the damascus basin we crouched cross-legged beside the immense brass tray and there was a moment of thrilled expectation while another slave lifted the lids of a dozen dishes Sometimes there was a small carved tray inlaid with silver on which stood half a score of bowls of sweetmeats, stiff blancmanges of all colors adorned with almonds, very sweet paste, something like Yorkshire pudding, junket made of the milk of a newly lambing sheep, all sorts of date concoctions, couscous made with raisins and sugar, a white sticky cream flavored with mint. Always there were bowls of sweet hot milk and piles of thin, crisp, heavy bread, fried with butter and eaten hot with sugar, called in Egypt, bread of the judge. Arab custom ordains that a guest must be entertained for three days and three nights, but the generous Kaimakan would not hear of our getting anything for ourselves. The story of Jedabiah was repeated over again. Once we protested about the mighty meals provided in the house of Sidi al-Abad, and the next day, as a reminder that the hospitality of the East is unbounded and must be accepted with the simplicity with which it is offered, 
the number of dishes was doubled and there were no fewer than twenty loaves ranged round the tray while the center plat was no longer a bowl it was literally a bath of mellow golden rice in which lay the buttery fragments of a whole sheep two hours each morning were spent in that quiet room going through the various ceremonies dependent on breakfasting when the highly spiced and peppered coffee was finished there were always the three glasses of green tea hot and strong with dignified slow conversation punctuated by many pauses while the brazier smoke made little hypnotic spirals and through the open door a splash of sunlight crept over the castellated walls and lingered on the purple and rose of the carpets between the great arches of the loggia about eleven o'clock scented and very replete we took ceremonious leave of our host and departed slowly but the instant the doors of sidi idris's house closed on the last alakom salam of the departing slave we dropped the ponderous and reflective gait suited to our exalted position and ran across the great court to shut ourselves up in the harem the only really private bit of the house with pencils and paper how we regretted as we struggled with angles and degrees the perverse distrust with which the zuyas regard even a compass we used to have the most frantic arguments about our primitive maps but hassanine was nearly always right as to direction and i as to distance fruit of so many long journeys in the desert where all landmarks appear three times as near as they really are we worked solidly till four or five though there were nearly always interruptions mohammed to say we should have to buy a camel man for twenty pounds and sell him again at jagaboob yusuf to say the girbas still leaked after all his cunning treatment little sidi omar resplendent in a wonderful yellow jubba to hint about the scarcity of pocket knives in kufara sheikh musa from hawari to tell us that the men of his village were too overawed to visit us in the house of the sayeds but were exceedingly regretful concerning their reception of us so the hot hours wore away and about five we wandered out to see the amazing sunsets over the wadi when for a few minutes the whole oasis was dyed in rainbow flames generally before the crimson disk had sunk beyond the western sands surer was anxiously scanning the landscape to announce the dinner hour we had long ago lost count of european time we used vaguely to calculate that the sun rose at six a m and set at six p m but for all practical purposes we followed the arab day which begins an hour after sunset we set our watches each evening to solar time and found ourselves counting and changing months by the lunar year of islam i never knew what day of the week it was till friday came when if we were in a town we joined the stream of worshippers clad in their best clothes who wended their way to the mosque in the desert the most learned would recite the koran and read a simple form of prayer while the muzain was crying the melodious call to prayer la ilhala ilala haya ala sala haya ala fala from the round tower at the end of the zawiya wall we passed between the shuttered houses gravely greeting the few white shrouded forms who crossed our path as the last appealing yet triumphant allahu akbar rang out to the evening star we entered the first low door and the oppressive secrecy of the house shut us in 
how many cloistered lives were hidden behind the little wooden shutters that never opened for dark-fringed eyes to peer shyly at the passing strangers sometimes little Sidi omar ran out to kiss my hand and say on my head and my eyes i love you sometimes we saw a long row of red leather slippers before one of the smaller porches and caught a glimpse of white figures bent over a huge platter from which with a right thumb and two fingers it is very bad form to dirty more of the hand than this they ate rapidly otherwise the house kept its secrets well and we never knew who lived in it or how after the evening meal the atmosphere mellowed with a candlelight and mint tea our host talked to us of the sayads he served of their great history and their influence we learned that sidi ahmed as sharif was respected and revered as the supporter of the old regime he stood for the stern, unbending laws of the first Senussi. His judgments were ruthlessly severe and rapidly executed, as in the case of the unfortunate Mukhtar. The malefactor saw only a stately white figure, completely veiled, and from behind the snowy cloth came the immutable words of judgment. Sayyid Ahmed broke men. He never bent them. Yet the older Ekwan, serious and simple, venerated him because to them he represents the power of tradition, the inviolate Islam, fanatically opposed to European progress. On the other hand, Sidi Idris is loved. As the son of the Mahdi, the Sanusi saint, the wonder of whose works and words is rapidly becoming legendary, he inherits a great power. The Bedouin likes to worship something tangible under Allah, he must feel convinced that there is one being on earth who blends spiritual and temporal power so that he himself can dwell in a sort of mystic security. Insha'Allah, and if our Lord Idris wills it, is an oft-repeated phrase. The emir has a reputation for justice and patience. The former is as stringent and as merciless as that of his predecessor, but it is tempered with the infinite patience always taken to ensure the whole of the case being examined before judgment is given. This is essential in the land where the justice of the Quran is the only code, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Drunkenness is punished by flogging. The thief loses his right hand. Treachery means death. Sidi Idris is too good a Moslem and too great a mystic not to have secured the wholehearted devotion of his father's followers, while his broad-minded and intelligent foreign policy has secured him the respect of the modern element. The accord at Rajima was one of the greatest triumphs. It showed his power in Cyrenaica. The tribal sheikhs of the coast, almost without exception, announced, The word of Idris is ours. The closing scene of our day will always be connected in my mind with the chanting of the Quran and the Zawiya and the most brilliant clear starlight as we return to our house in silence, only broken by the soft shuffling of our heelless slippers in the sand. While the cold white light warred with our candles and the melodious words of the book were still humming in our ears, visitors would gradually make their appearance. The judge, Osman Quadi, Mahmoud el Jadawi, the Wakil, a few of the more advanced Ekwan, among whom was Mohammed Tawate, close friend of the Mahdi. The last named is partially paralyzed, and the Sanusi mind, always alert for signs and miracles, explains that, in defiance of the direct orders of Sidi al Rifi, 
the unfortunate man started to journey north. Before he reached Tawari, his camel died, and he himself was stricken with paralysis. In those dim evenings, while I made scented tea, the talk was a little less formal. We learned how much the Mahdi had done for Kufara, for besides giving it flowers, fruit, and vegetables, he introduced pigeons and duck and the cultivation of grain. He built the fortress sanctuary of Taj, where the wells are ninety feet deep, so that water is always scarce and a girba full is a gift, since two hefty slaves have to wind up the heavy buckets foot by foot. The site is well chosen, but the town depends for its life on an army of slaves, for every vegetable or flower, every date and piece of firewood must be carried up from the wadi below. The fuel is dry hatab and huge palm leaves. There is also charcoal made in the valley. The Mahdi instituted the regular caravan route to Wadai and encouraged a very extensive trade between the Sudan and Cyrenaica. He miraculously discovered wells on the southern route, and old Sheikh Suleiman Bumatar told how his father had been with the saint when the water failed the caravan at Sara on the way to Wadai. The Senussi leader pointed to a spot which appeared to be solid rock and bade the men dig. Hour after hour they labored till the well had sunk beyond the sight of the watchers up above. Only their faith in the Mahdi could have made possible so gigantic a task, for the water did not appear till almost the inconceivable depth of a hundred and twenty kamas, the length of a man's forearm and hand from elbow to first knuckles. Only a man with amazing eyesight can see the water, and the rope is unending, said Sheikh Suleiman. We learned a list of the prices in Kufara from a ponderous merchant whose striped brown and yellow jerd reminded one of biblical pictures. Hajin, trotting camels, all of which belonged to the Tibus, cost seventeen to eighteen pounds in gold. Sheep were five medjidies, goats four and a half, fowls half a medjidie, and pigeons four and a half kurash. Eggs were very cheap, a hundred for a medjidie, two a penny. But sugar was two medjidies an oak, eight shillings for two pounds, and tea, three medjidies an oak. Butter fetched two medjidies for three rotels, one pound. Practically no other produce is sold. The owners of the gardens keep their vegetables for themselves. Mahmoud el-Jadawi volunteered much information about dates. This year the grazing is good in Barca, so you may buy several camel loads for a medjidie. But when there is no grass in the north, the Zuis come here with large caravans and buy all our dates, so that for a medjidi, you can purchase but a few rotels. He added that many tons of the Sayed's dates were even now rotting, as there were no camels to take them away. I have noticed that there are very few camels in Kufara, I said. There are very few men also, he replied. The Zuwiyas have taken all their camels to Barca this year to feed them on the good grass. They do this every winter when the Nagas are foaling, as there is no fodder here. They leave their families in Kufara and come back to them in the summer. I used to get very sleepy before the last visitor departed, having generally urgently urged us not to do the Jagabab route. They are the most depressing of Job's comforters with regard to journeys, for they always remember terrible stories of death from thirst or loss of direction, which they relate with infinite detail. 
Thus, we learn that the Gebel Fadil, on the east of the Ziegen route, was so called because some twenty years ago, one Jebel Fadl had missed the well at Ziegen on his way from Jalo, and had perished in the mountains with all his family. Concerning the Jagabub route, the most encouraging sentence was generally, If you miss it, you go either to Siva or to Hell, uttered in a tone that left no doubt as to which was the more probable. We had secured the only guide in the place, Suleiman, and we had ascertained that he really had done the journey four years before, and that previous to that he had done it with Yusuf. He was a little, quiet old man, bent and gray, of few words. When we asked him the length of the journey, he said, Wallahi, I cannot tell. My walk is twelve days from Zakar, but I do not know your walk. We assured him with the utmost fervor that our walk would almost certainly be the twin brother of his own. But personally, I thought the whole caravan would probably sit down and die of complete inanition. Asanine and I had never yet managed to walk a whole twelve hours on end. Mohammed had nearly died in the attempt. Yusuf had grown fat and soft again on the rich fare of Taj, while Suleiman looked much too ancient and frail for such a stupendous march. Our weakness was equaled only by that of the animals, for the best had all fold, and only the young, unreliable Nagas, three years old, and a couple of ancient camels were left, beside the caricature and various halt and lame, who looked as if they were dancing all the time because they had cut feet. However, we had become completely fatalistic. We proposed to take vast stores of water and put the rest of our trust in Allah. We also proposed to leave Kufara as soon as possible. Firstly, because our hosts were so prodigious in their hospitality that we could not bear to take advantage of it longer than was absolutely necessary for our work. Secondly, because, though what may be called the party directly responsible to the government were very kindly disposed toward the guests of their rulers, the ancient and old-fashioned Equan held aloof. They would not believe that any strangers could have been given permission to penetrate their guarded privacy. They were torn between their desire to do honor to the Sayyids and their horror of diverging a hair's breadth from immemorial custom. Among the Zuyas, there were now two factions. Many had been infected by the stories of the Bazama family and Abdullah, but a small party had gradually formed in our favor under the leadership of Suleiman Bu Matar. There were always, however, currents and cross-currents under the surface, which sometimes rippled into open suspicion. Also, there had been many very persistent inquiries on the part of the most lawless elements as to the exact date of our departure and our proposed route. It was known that the soldiers would not be traveling with us, so we should be an easy prey if the tribesmen wanted to play their last card. We therefore spread the rumor that we should remain at least a fortnight longer at Taj, and privately began to make preparations for another flight, this time aided and abetted by the Kaimakan, who planned to send our little caravan a day's march ahead while we were still openly in Taj. Under the guidance of a trusted sheik, we could overtake it on fast-trotting camels. Meanwhile, it was necessary that we should investigate the western end of the oasis. For this purpose, Sheikh Suleiman offered himself as guide and host combined. I will arrange everything, he said quietly. Do not trouble yourselves. 
you shall travel in comfort. We rather wondered what represented his idea of comfort when he announced that we would start two hours before dawn, as it was a very long way. However, we duly rose at nine o'clock by night, Arabic, 3 a.m., and shortly afterwards a muffled thudding on the door warned us that our escort had arrived. We hurried out, clutching all available blankets, for it was extremely cold. The moon had set, so at first I thought two immense towers had sprung up in the night outside the house. A second glance revealed them as very tall hegen. They were barracked with difficulty, and I mounted the most uncomfortable saddle I have ever met. It must have had the advantage, from the camel's point of view, of being exceedingly light, for it consisted merely of two bars about ten inches apart, across which was doubled a carpet, with an upright spoke in front and behind. But it had every possible disadvantage for the aching bones of the rider. Little did I guess that I was destined, with a few short pauses, to spend no less than seventeen hours upon that seat of torture. The commandant, Salah Effendi, with his gold and green cloak thrown across his thickest jurd, and Hassanine mounted donkeys which looked microscopic from my towering height. The two soldiers perched themselves, one behind the other, on the second hagen, and down into the wadi we swung, picking our way slowly till we came to the massed palms when the party settled down to ride. The silvery stone of the marsh was a frozen gray in the starlight, and the houses of Joff but a blur on a low ridge. The leaf hedges were rustling fingers stretched out to bar our way, and the great beams of the shadooks, wells, were ghostly gibbets in the shadow of the palms. Outside of one of Joff's blind walls we barracked, when, after prolonged knocking, a sleepy slave announced that Sheikh Suleiman was not yet ready. Arab life is very adaptable. Within a few minutes of receiving the news, the saddle carpets had been spread in the shelter of the wall, a fire of palm leaves, sent out by our host, lighted, dates produced from the same hospitable source, and we had all settled down for a prolonged wait under the still brilliant stars. I think I slept for a few moments, my head on a stone, for when I was aroused by a soft salam malakum, the stars were less brilliant, and a third slender-limbed hegem was outlined against the gray sky. We set forth briskly to the south, and soon the long block of Joff's houses and the neatly fenced gardens of the Sayeds lay behind us. The donkeys kept up a sort of short amble, while the camels slipped into the tireless, swinging stride, half-swift walk, half-trot, the most comfortable pace in the world. As the light grew clearer, I saw that mine was a big tibesti beast, palest gray, long-haired and stately, but not as finely bred as the other two. They were the fast Touareg breed of piebald gray and white, with blue eyes, very thin, like greyhounds in their lean slenderness. They ought to be able to do the racing trot, which covers ten kilometers an hour. Through the dawn we rode, until the sun grew hot, always west with a hint of south. The large sweep of Joff palms disappeared on our right. Zurich was left on the other side. Then, as we came into the open space beyond, where the large mounds of Hattab begin, we saw that we were leaving the enchanted wadi behind us. We skirted the long strip of palms which forms Tolilib. There is no proper village in the oasis, but, scattered through the green, one catches sight of a few houses of the slaves who tend the palms. 
As we went farther west, the mounds grew to hillocks, and the red sand was tufted here and there with high grass, while masses of gray bushes climbed over the miniature girds. Four hours after sunrise, while yet Tolab was far ahead, Sheikh Suleiman called a halt. A cold north wind had arisen and was finding the old tender spot in my shoulder, so I was glad when he chose the largest sand hill for our picnic breakfast. Bright scarlet rugs were spread on the lee side for the men and a faded rose-red carpet in the shelter of a smaller mound for me, as a woman could not eat with the soldiers. I fancy it would have hurt the Zuya's susceptibilities if he had been obliged to encounter feminine fingers in the common bowl. After that meal, we had an idea of what the Bedouin means by traveling comfortably. A complete portable kitchen must have been hidden in the capacious, brightly striped cords that hung on either side of the blue-eyed camel. The most delicious odors were soon wafted from a pot stewing on a brushwood fire. A soldier brought me a long-necked brass ewer and a towel before my breakfast was shyly handed me by an ancient and dignified servitor of the sheik, by name Mohammed, who had run beside the chief the whole way from Joff without protest, though he carried a heavy rifle. I had been given a brass tray of dates to eat, and I was contemplating writing a monograph on the various uses of the date in Kufara. It is used for all sweetening purposes in cooking. Mixed with some other local ingredient, it makes a sticky sort of glue. A soft date, slightly squashed, takes the place of a cork, and every tin of oil is sealed that way. The stones apparently make studs for the nostrils of Tibu girls. I feel sure there are other uses, but the appearance of food prevented my thinking of them that morning among the bristling mounds of Hatab. I lifted a plated cover of palm leaves embroidered in red, and there were nearly a dozen hard-boiled eggs surrounding a mound of crisp, flat bread. Another layer of palm leaf disclosed enough cold lamb cooked in red pepper and onions to feed all the party liberally, while the whole was balanced upon a bowl of delicious thick soup full of vermicelli, carrots, and other unknown vegetables. All was hot with scarlet strips of filfil. Greed and fear struggled in my mind, but the former one and all the cold north wind could not cool my fevered tongue after I had partaken of that highly spiced dish. When a row of little tin teapots were heating on separate piles of ashes, I joined the party under the larger mound, and we drank hot sweet tea, which tasted strongly of the inside of the gerba which had been hidden underneath the saddlebags. Afterwards, there was half an hour's amiable silence, punctuated by rare remarks, chiefly concerning the flora and fauna of the wadi, this being the least suspicious subject of conversation we could think of and Mohammed being visibly eager to distrust. It could not be lengthened out interminably because there are no wild animals in Kufara, and I never saw a bird, though I was told that several species, chief among them the wagtail like Abu Fasada, make their appearance in March at the harvest time. The grain is a winter crop. Of insects, there is a large variety, chiefly distinguished by their voracious appetites. Cleopatra's asp, a small fawn-colored snake, lurks among the sand and in the oasis there are several kinds of serpents, large and small, most of them poisonous. We were assured that one large dark snake measures at least six feet 
and is particularly feared by the natives. Perhaps this is the legendary beast of Hawaish. After our excellent meal, Tolab appeared much nearer and the wind much less strong. We rode on for another couple of hours and verified our suspicions that the wadi had no definite end. We had a bitter argument as to degrees, for we had not dared to bring even a compass, which for once was later decided in my favor by the setting sun. Then we turned to the scattered gardens of Tolab, where I saw roses, verbena, and tiny lemon trees, all neatly tied up in fiber matting after the fashion of English gardeners. There is absolutely nothing to see in this last oasis of Kufara, whose sand-brick houses are scattered round the cultivated plots without regular order. We noticed a number of shadooks worked by small gray donkeys, and were hurried away by our host to get a glimpse of the far-distant Gebel Neri, as he had become quite interested in our exploration. These mountains are wonderful landmarks for at least two days south and north, but when we passed them on the way from Busima, we had no means of judging their height. We thought they might rise 150 to 200 meters above the surrounding country, which would make them 750 to 800 above sea level, but this was only a guess. Two and a half days' journey northwest of Tolab lies Ribiana, behind Agara twice as big as that of Busima. We were told that the population consists of about a hundred Zuyas and Tibus. There is an old Zawiya founded by the four original Ekwans sent by Sidi Ben Ali. The Sheik is Abu Bakr. There is a salt marsh between the mountain and the strip of palm some 18 kilometers long, at the southern end of which is the Zawiya, while at the northern end is a village of about 10 houses. This information we gathered from Sheik Suleiman, as we rode round the western end of Tolab and turned homewards through the waste of low Hatab toward Tolilid. Thereafter, the hours seemed interminable. Nothing ever got any nearer while the saddlebars felt like knife blades. The only break was when we dismounted for the Asr prayers. Eventually, we entered the northern edge of Tolilib's palms and were only too thankful when, just before sunset, the tireless Zuya called a halt beside an immense sandbank, and the morning meal was repeated. We will take a glass of tea to refresh us, said our host modestly. But very soon, another savory mess was being stewed in the capacious pot, while Salah Effendi produced fresh mint leaves which had been given to him at Tolab. This time, everyone ate swiftly, plunging great chunks of bread into the basin of stewed vegetables and meat, but once again I was provided with a separate meal tastefully arranged on wicker plates. In half an hour we were in the saddle again, but the animals were tired and the sunset blazed behind us before we drew near the dark shadow of Zuruk. A three-quarter moon mingled her silver light with the red of the flaming west, and the amber sands reflected the most extraordinary colors, which changed in the unreal light like the transformation scene in the pantomime. The pace was just too quick to walk in the soft, deep sand, so I had to cling to my painful saddle for another three hours. In starlight, we had left Joff. In starlight, we returned to it, steering by a glazing fire set to guide us to the gardens of Sayed Rita, from where Mahmud el-Jadawi had asked us to bring some sacks of dates 
probably for our own journey. The scene of the early morning was repeated, for the Sayed's black slaves, fantastic figures and tattered sacking or shreds of cotton, brought bundles of palm leaves for a fire and poured a great pile of hard golden dates onto a huge woven platter. We crunched these as we rested our aching bones on hastily spread carpets, while more and more ebony figures joined the group, and just the heads of the camels solemnly chewing the cud came into the circle of wavering firelight under the stars. The last hour's ride was very slow, for the Hejin were unaccustomed to carrying loads, but it was done to the accompaniment of marriage music from the town and wild ulalain of women, mixed with firing of guns and beating of drums. He is taking a very little girl. She is only thirteen, said Sally Effendi of the bridegroom. I thought of the woman-child and her stiff, heavy draperies, clinging shyly and desperately to the veil which she would so soon have to raise for an unknown man, the stranger to whom her parents had given her. Yusuf and Mohammed were waiting for us at the top of the cliff, two unrecognizable figures entirely muffled in immense woolen jerds. With the usual Arab cheerfulness, they had come to the conclusion that we had already been murdered by the Zuyas. The attitude of the two men had been very characteristic during our stay at Taj. Both knew by this time that the object of the expedition was to write a book about the country. Both believed it must be for the good of the Senussi, since we traveled under the Sayed's protection. But after this, they differed. Yusuf felt that he had accomplished his duty when we arrived safely in Kufara. He was delighted that we were well received and hospitably entertained by the government, for he thought that we should be impressed by the generosity of the Sayeds. Mohammed felt, instinctively, that we did not need impressing, and all he wanted was that the work of Sidi Idris should be successfully achieved. Both were conscious of the undercurrent of unrest. Yusuf, treating us as strangers and himself as one of the people of Kufara, explained to us with perfect justice that the position was largely due to our own mistakes. Often we had trusted the wrong people. Often I, alas, had forgotten the nice shades of Muslim feminine behavior in my thirst for knowledge. Muhammad swept aside all these points. He counted that Sidi Idris and he and we were all pitted for the moment against those who hampered, consciously or unconsciously, the work of the Sayyid. Therefore, he used to encourage us in friendly fashion, gather news for us, explain exactly how we should treat such and such a rumor, and urge us to persevere. Yusuf always labored to vindicate the honor of the Sayyids. Mohammed knowing that no vindication was necessary, labored to accomplish through us the task he had been given so many weeks before in Jedebiya. The one thought in terms of Cusco and padded camel saddles, the other in something he vaguely termed work, but which, of course, should logically have been the pencils and notebooks he distrusted. The day after our long expedition to Tolab was El Guma, so luckily breakfast a mighty bowl of pigeons, eggs, and carrots, was sent to our house, and we stayed indoors till it was time for the noon prayers, announced by the Muzain and by a runner who knocked at the outer door of each house with his cry of invitation ever repeated. Hassanine clothed himself in the cleanest jurd and departed to the Zawiyah with the devout Muhammad. 
I slipped into an outer room beyond the mosque, for there was no place in the ladder for women, and watched the impressive scene discreetly hidden behind a pillar. All the Ekwan were present in their most resplendent silk jubas, with snowy veils above their many-colored kufias. They made splashes of vivid red, orange, and green among the coarse white jerds of the Bedouins. After the last azan, with sound of fife and drum, escorted by a guard of soldier slaves in their gala attire, khaki with sundry embroideries, the Kaimakan arrived in state with Sidi Moy el-Din and Sidi Ibrahim, the sons of Sayyid Ahmed Sharif, and Sidi Sanusi, son of Sidi al-Abid. His usual grave dignity was accentuated as he mounted the mimbar, a massive figure in striped robes and purple silk, with embroidered blue jacket underneath a gorgeous many-tasseled kufia, stiff with gold thread over his spotless white turban, from which depended the finest silk and wool veil. In delivering the usual Friday speech, he asked the prayers and benediction of Allah for the four earliest caliphs, Abu Bekr, Omar, Othman, and Ali, and for twelve other sainted followers and friends of the Prophet. After the prayer, a solemn procession, headed by the sons of the Sanusi Sayyids, passed in ponderous silence, save for the wrestling of bare feet on palm mats, to the dim inner chamber to salute the Quaba of the Mahdi. If it be possible for Taj to be more dignified and impressive than usual, it achieves that effect on al Guma. For all day one catches glimpses between the dark walls of the richly garbed Ekwan moving slowly, silk jurds carefully raised above the sand. After the Acer prayers, the deputation of four who had received us, the judge, Sidi Sala, Sidi Ahmed Sanusi, and Sidi Omar, came to bid us the city's formal farewell, though we were not expected really to leave for several days. The visit was meant tactfully to imply that we were now free of official receptions and banquets, though Arab hospitality could only be satisfied by privately sending large meals to our house while we remained in Taj. We lured the judge and the portly dignitaries into our sunlit court, but they were terrified at being photographed. We had to treat them like children at the dentists and keep up a flow of laughing conversation about the painlessness of the operation while they huddled pathetically together for comfort and support. Later in the day, we were visited by Hassan and Hussein Bazama from Ribiana. Relations of the men who had spread so many false reports about us, they doubtless came to Taj in the first place to discover how much of their kinsman's tale was true. Finding us the guests of Sidi Idris, they decided the larger part must be incorrect. Hassan was dark and lean and altogether too reminiscent of Abdullah to please me, but his brother was a nice little plump person, kindly disposed toward the world in general, and most unusually truthful for a Bedouin, for when his elder brother tried to sell us a camel, he remarked in a small, plaintive voice, He is a very old camel. By this time we had learned how to make Arab tea. It must have been a good brew that day, for the brothers verified all Sheikh Suleiman's information about Ribiana and urgently invited us to visit it. We politely refused, having seen quite enough of these lonely strips of palms with a few deserted dark red houses. They seemed slightly hurt, 
so we explained that our camels really could not be expected to do an extra week's traveling before the long jagaboob trip as a matter of fact we were very much troubled about our caravan five of the nagas had foaled and could not be taken away from their offspring we had given the soldiers six camels for their homeward journey via zegan and jello and they complained bitterly about the inadequacy of the number maraja had married the pale dark-eyed woman who had travelled with us from busima and he wanted to take his wife back to jedabia with him abdul rahim very naturally refused as already they had insufficient transport the sergeant was furious and threatened to stay behind but we were no longer interested in their troubles having quite enough of our own the girbas we bought in the souk were too new to be safe and we were desperately afraid of losing our water suleiman the guide suddenly announced that only the asiad ever went to jagaboob and that as nobody had travelled that way for more than three years the one well at zakar would not only be filled up but probably covered by a dune as the water was very far away it might take three days to dig down to it worst of all we had only seven camels four of these must carry water and two fodder that left only one for food for six persons their luggage and their tents we tried to hire tibu camels at an exorbitant price but found that nobody would let their beasts go north in midwinter for the camels have very thin coats in kufara and generally die when they reach a colder climate i explained that there had been no difference in the temperature of aujela and taj but was told that the jagabug brute would be bitterly cold and the winds almost intolerable with this pleasant thought in mind we suggested buying a couple of camels but there was none to be sold except the ancient bazama beast already shivering he will die on the way said yusuf hating to make a bad bargain i don't mind if he does providing he will last four or five days beyond the zakar well we shall have drunk his load by then and shall not need him any more i said do you think he will break down before then yusuf would not commit himself one could see it in his eye if he meant to die in two days was all he vouchsafed our friend mahmoud el jadawi bestirred himself energetically on our account and after searching most of Jaff, he triumphantly produced the most amazing camel i have ever seen it looked as if a portion of it had been left out in the making we all walked round it mystified silence to discover what was missing it had the self-satisfied expression of a short plump curry-loving indian colonel and almost certainly there was something odd about its shape i looked at yusuf appealingly it is very woolly yes it has much wool he said with polite despair we decided not to purchase it and were rewarded at the last moment by the production by a tibu of a really magnificent camel half agent and half beast of burden its price was very high two hundred medjides but we did not even wait to bargain it was too necessary to us we hated letting it go out of our sight for a moment but its master insisted that we could not have it till the following day and we were obliged to let the caravan start without it this time the flight was well arranged though it was precipitated by another of abdullah's darts we learned that he had been spreading far and wide a story that the venerated sidi ahmed el rifi teacher and adviser of the mahdi 
had prophesied disaster to any stranger who travelled on the Jagamug route. It is a sacred road between our two holy places, he had said. It is for the Sayeds and their followers only. Nobody else may go safely by it. Whether the saying had other origin than the twisted brain of Abdullah, we did not know. But it might have a distressing effect on the easily roused fanaticism of the retinue. We therefore hurried the small caravan off early one morning with the nominal destination of Hawari, because there was a certain amount of grazing in the neighborhood, and it would be natural for the camels to rest there for a week or ten days before starting for Jagaboog. As a matter of fact, they skirted the village and main oases and camped in an isolated palm grove some miles farther on where their presence was little likely to be suspected. Next day, we made obvious preparations for a tour of the wadi, and then, just after sunset, while all the devout inhabitants of Taj were occupied with their prayers, we slipped out of our discreet little door, wandered carelessly around a projecting wall, and found two camels ready-saddled in charge of a plaintive Yusuf, who hated the idea of traveling in a strong north wind, bitterly cold. Muffled in coarse jurds, only our new primrose leather boots with crimson uppers laced with scarlet thongs apparent to the public gaze, we plodded out of the little town followed by Yusuf, Suleiman, and a fortnight old fool. The wind was so strong that we hardly cast a backward glance at the oasis which had shown us so much in so short a time. It was a complete chapter of life we left behind. We felt that we had studied its pages thoroughly, but we knew that we had not read all that lay between the lines. Through a glass, darkly, we had been allowed a glimpse of an unsuspected civilization, aloof from our own and utterly different. For a few days we had moved amidst the friendship and enmity of a rigidly isolated religious fraternity, feeling something of the remote fanaticism, much of their warm generosity, a little of the almost pathetic simplicity which underlay their plots and counterplots. Yet we were ever strangers in a strange land, welcome to their dignified hospitality, but never admitted for a minute to the inner workings of their minds. Some glimpses we caught behind the scenes. Some threads to unravel the unspoken mysteries were put into our hands later by a suddenly talkative Yusuf. But the secrets of Taj are still safe with us. Each one must unravel them for himself for no traveler may tell when he has once crossed the threshold not only the great house on the cliff but of the life of these people where each man's brain is an island in itself whose secrets are as jealously guarded as the oasis is by nature the desert had paid us her debt we had conquered her waterless desolation and her perilous dunes we had won the right to her secret and generously she showed it yet we knew she grudged us our triumph as the dark stone houses disappeared swiftly into the red sand and black rocks, so that, looking back after a few minutes, one might believe one had dreamed of the wadi and its people, I wondered what price we should pay for our knowledge. Behind the first ledge of rocks, a gnome-like figure, green-hooded and cloaked, rose suddenly beside a microscopic gray donkey, while another unrecognizably disguised by a scarlet handkerchief which left but an eye visible appeared with a most unwilling sheep 
They were the commandant, Saleh Effendi, sent to accompany us to our first camp, and a soldier to slaughter the sheep in our honor. Subdued greetings were hardly finished when a portly, panting figure, white jerd blowing wildly over a dark blue jubba, turban and spectacles slightly awry, hurried over the rocks. It was Sayyid Amasasanusi come to give us a last blessing with many injunctions to the guide to look after us well. After the fatha had been gravely repeated, he clutched Yusuf's sleeve and murmured mysteriously, Will you not halt your caravan round the next gird, as I wish to send out to you food for your journey, meat, bread, and rice? In a still lower voice, he explained that many of the friendly Ikwan had wished to feast us, but had been afraid of hurting the feelings of the Kaimakan, who looked upon us as his guests. Arab custom ordains that when a stranger comes to a town, any man who visits him afterward sends food to him or feasts him in his house. Therefore, the Equan had been in some difficulty. Either they broke their laws of hospitality, or they ran counter to the generous wishes of the Kaimakan, or they failed in respect to the Sayyid by not visiting the guests in his house. We remembered that the sons of Sayyid Ahmed Sharif and Sayyid El Abad, boys between 14 and 17, had often waited to greet us as we left the house of Sidi Salah. We wanted to see if the Sit Kadija wears the same clothes as our ladies, one had said shyly. But they were frightened of being photographed, the idea being that if one possesses a picture of a person, one possesses also his soul, or at least a certain hypnotic power over him. We were obliged regretfully to decline this delightful offer of Sidi Ahmed, as speed was necessary. Therefore, we hurried north as fast as our odd little procession, camels, donkey, sheep, and foal, would go. The wind dropped after the first three hours, and a feeble moon rose in a clear, translucent sky. It was a night of color so marvelous that it was unreal. I knew the strange tricks moonlight could play in the desert, but only once before had I seen such startling effects, and that was in Chuchinchao. White moonlight on white sand makes an iridescent silvery sea, cold, almost cruel in its pale intangibility. But this was a golden light on an amber-red world, and, except that one could not see so far, it was as clear as the day. The palm trees were shades of sapphire, silvered at the edge, and their shadows hot, clear-cut purple. We rode through a world so wonderful that when we had skirted the dreaming village of Hawari and completely lost our way in the oasis beyond, the infallibility of guides is a very brittle myth in Libya, we hardly minded, but with jerds flung back, we reveled in unutterable stillness and color inconceivable. Even after we had turned to complete circles and with a waning moon, unexpectedly discovered our camp discreetly hidden in a hollow between great clumps of palms and what looked like mimosa trees, we could not go into the tent, though it was one of the coldest nights we had. We sat outside amidst the violet and amber, and in spite of dates and cinnamon bread, wondered how soon we should wake up. Our desire for a swift and secret departure from the palm grove near Hawari was frustrated by the non-arrival of our new camel till the afternoon of the following day. By this time, of course, most of the population of the neighboring village of Awardel was in our camp, 
the zuias were most friendly and terribly curious their shrewd suspicious eyes and pale mean faces encircled my tent all day hoping to catch a glimpse to satisfy their curiosity but out of sheer perversity i smothered my face in the barakan and then snapshotted them when they were not looking unfortunately i had left behind something of a reputation as a doctor nature presumably having taken my patients in hand after my departure so all day long my tent was thronged by women with the most mysterious maladies the poorer ones crouched outside their scarlet woolen barracans an effective contrast to their black tobes the most picturesque combination i had yet seen the wives of important sheiks were ushered into my tent and the flaps closed after them by jealous male relatives if they were young they would not uncover their faces even to me but mute huddled bundles of voluminous draperies with at least three barracans of rich dark weaving one over the other they sat on my camp bed while an ancient crony translated their knees they wanted me to feel skin diseases through layers of garments prescribe for invisible eyes and generally guess at their ailments from the descriptions of their elderly relatives who urged them at intervals entirely without effect not to be afraid their jewelry interested me for they wore bracelets like gauntlets of thin beaten silver reaching halfway from wrist to elbow and odd flat rings big and thin as a five shilling piece the day ended with a violent quarrel between mohammed and abdullah who was to return with the soldiers to jedabiah because the kaimakam thought sidi idris was punish him more severely than he had power to do the guide had told mohammed he would beat his nose flat apparently an appalling insult for the uproar was prodigious and in the middle of it while everyone was shouting at the top of their voices our trusted retainer wept like an infant he was only comforted by permission to buy a slave girl he coveted she had walked all the way from darfur he said so she can walk to jagabug with us but we persuaded him to send her to jallo later on their caravan was already overloaded without the ebony maiden's food and water though we were horribly tempted to take her when we heard she was a good cook as camel men were scarce at the moment in kufara and fetched very high prices we had taken mohammed's follower amar instead he was a plucky and willing boy a pupil from the jagabug zawiya but alas no cook the way he ruined our treasured rice was little short of a tragedy the evening of january twenty fourth was spent in a pursuit that was becoming habitual that of sorting our rapidly diminishing baggage to see what could be left behind this time the tent and the camp beds had to go there would be no time to put up the tent on the jagabub route with our small and somewhat feeble retinue after walking twelve hours a day probably against a strong wind by the time the camels were attended to and the rice or flour cooked one would have no energy left to struggle with tent pegs the most one could hope for would be a flea bag on the ground sheet in the inadequate shelter of a zariba made of our food and fodder sacks we now had one suitcase a sack of provisions and two rolls of bedding we might put the ground sheets in the bedding i said casually looking around the pathetically small pile of our belongings to see if we could possibly do without anything else your flea bag is the thinnest we had better put it in between the flaps 
I thought there was a certain nervousness in Hassanine's eyes as we undid the bulky roll, but I did not quite understand it, even when a bottle of ambered eau de cologne and an immense attaché case fell out, scattering a complete manicure set in the sand. I was quite used to this sort of thing by now, but I was mildly surprised when a violent protest followed my efforts to insert the waterproof sheet. Take care, take care, you will hurt yourself. What on earth do you mean? Woolen flea bags don't bite. The thought struck us both instantaneously that this was hardly correct at the moment, and we were both laughing when suddenly a pain that could hardly have been inflicted by even the largest Libyan bug shot through my hand. What is that? I gasped and pulled out a very large, sharp saw. For one horrible moment, I thought my companion had developed tendencies to homicidal mania as I stood open-mouthed with the tool in my hand. I've hidden that damn thing in my bedding for three months, and whenever I turned over it ran in my shoulder and I've cut myself on it three times, he said viciously. But why, why, why? I could only stutter. I thought it would be so useful, was the reply. Visions of the treeless desert with no tuft of moss or blade of grass must have crossed both our minds simultaneously, for almost before I could ask feebly, what did you mean to cut? He said, I don't know, I just felt it would come in useful to make things with, he added hastily under my baleful eye. But I didn't want you to see it. I knew you would laugh. Laugh, I exclaimed scornfully, sucking my fingertips. After all, you needn't make such a fuss. It's no worse than your bread. And I remembered the days on the way to Tizerbo when I had insisted on treasuring a piece of ten-day-old bread in my knapsack with much the same sort of feeling that it might come in useful. My companion, unlawfully in search of matches, the only things we refused to share were matches and soap, though we never used the latter, cut his hand badly on the rough, sharp edge of my precious loaf, and thereafter spoke of food as the most dangerous element in the desert. End of chapter 12